Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, China History Podcast once again, part five this time of this overview of eunuchs throughout the ages. We started in the Shang, the earliest times in China that we know with certainty that eunuchs existed. And as we progressed along the eunuch history timeline from treetop level looking down, we reviewed many of the palace eunuchs immortalized in the official histories and in popular Chinese history, who indelibly marked China's eunuchs as abominations whose greed and hunger for power brought down three dynasties, the Han, the Tang, and the Ming. And this time we'll finish off with China's last and final imperial dynasty, the Manchu Qing Dynasty, 1644 to 1911. Unlike in the case of those other three dynasties, eunuchs alone can't be blamed for bringing the Qing to its knees. There were many other well-known factors that set the dynasty up for a long, agonizing decline, including for the fortunes of the Isenjuro imperial clan. But that doesn't mean the Qing was totally devoid of hated eunuchs and stories worth telling. Last episode, we saw how three of the four eunuch dictators, Wang Zhi, Liu Qin, and Wei Zhongxian, each in their own way made generous contributions to creating enough political instability at the top levels of government to soften up the Ming Dynasty to the extent that by the 1620s, it was all over and there was nothing anybody could do, least of all the final Ming Emperor Chongzhen, who hung himself from a tree rather than submit to the Manchu invaders. Today we'll discuss two eunuchs who rose to the top and enjoyed a fair degree of infamy for their deeds during their times as chief eunuch in the palace. So you can bet, with all the madness that had transpired during the Ming, allowing the eunuch problem to spiral out of control not once but four times, the Qing rulers early on made double and triple sure that those limited numbers of eunuchs they allowed into the palace were never given the opportunity to interfere in the internal affairs of the emperor and his court. The Xunzhi Emperor, first Qing ruler to reign from the palace in Beijing, and father of Kangxi, well, he minced no words, and in 1655 installed an iron tablet in the Forbidden City, just like the Hongwu Emperor did at the outset of the Ming. And this notice board contained a warning that stated, quote, The employment of eunuchs has been a tradition since ancient times. However, their abuses have often led to disastrous disturbances. They misappropriated power, intervened in government affairs, organized secret agents, murdered the innocent, commanded troops, and brought their evil practices to the border regions. They even engaged in conspiratorial activities, framed those who were loyal and good, instigated factional struggles, and encouraged fawning and flattery until the affairs of state deteriorated day by day and corruption occurred everywhere. From now on, anyone who was guilty of interfering with government affairs, misappropriating power, accepting bribes, involving himself in internal and external affairs, associating himself with Manchu and Han officials, reporting on things which are not his duty, or suggesting whether an official is good or bad, shall promptly be put to death by slicing without mercy. This iron tablet is hereby erected so that it may be observed from generation to generation. End quote. And you can't imagine how many unemployed Ming eunuchs were looking for work at the outset of the Qing. 
Some managed to find work at the palace, but overwhelmingly, these former Ming eunuchs were deemed untrustworthy and tainted by all the damage done by Wei Zhongxian at the tail end of the dynasty. The Kangxi Emperor was particularly mindful of maintaining order in the eunuch ranks, and he didn't go in for any of this having to run a gauntlet of eunuchs to hand off memorials to his ministers. He went straight to the tap and did his official business direct with them. He had set up an office in 1677 to organize the eunuchs and kept them on a very short leash under the strict supervision of the imperial household department. And his son, the Yongzheng emperor, he too gave the eunuchs no room to improvise and filled their lives with rules and stifling regulations. Thanks to all the chamber of horrors committed by eunuchs during the Ming, those who served in the palace after 1644 and clear through to the Daoguang Emperor, the one on duty during the First Opium War, there was never any wiggle room for eunuchs to get away with any of the things their kindred spirits of previous dynasties did. Touching the imperial treasury, engaging in politics, not a chance. But remember what I said about succession problems regarding the next emperor or selecting young or weak-kneed incompetent emperors? Well, what spinach was to Popeye, that's what these circumstances were to energizing the ambitions of well-placed palace eunuchs. After the Daoguang Emperor breathed his last in 1850, you had the Xianfeng Emperor, 19 years of age when he commenced his sad reign, he was the one married to the most famous empress dowager in modern Chinese history, Cixi. And once Xianfeng became incapacitated, this empress, also known as Yehanara Xingzhen, she pushed him to the side. And the next three emperors, in fact, the final three of the whole dynasty, all began their reigns quite young, the oldest one being the Tongzhi Emperor, five years old. He was followed by Guangxu, four years old, and Puyi was all of two years old. <laughs> what more could a eunuch want? That was the time period when the two eunuchs, An De Hai and Li Lianying, operated. Yeah, they were the shining two stars of the Qing dynasty, as far as notorious eunuchs went. First came An, followed right on his heels by Li Lianying, and both of them had the same sponsor, the Empress Dowager Cixi. And for a small number of eunuchs, these final decades of the Qing dynasty was their magic moment. Never were the restrictions more lax concerning their behavior, and many were the opportunities for well-placed eunuchs along the chain of command to earn some profits on top of their two to four silver tails per month salary. It's about 50 to 100 bucks, or maybe two to four times that if they were in some kind of supervisory role. Yeah, the words Qing Chao Mo Nian, the last years of the Qing, might evoke all kinds of images of a dynasty in decay. But for the eunuchs, it was anything but that. Never did they have it so nice. All those crushing restrictions from Shunzhi, Kangxi, Yongzheng, Qianlong, and others swept under the rug. During the Qing, these Skilled professionals called Daozi Jiangs plied their trade in their changzis or, or sheds located in and around the hutongs within walking distance of the Forbidden City. All of these Daozi Jiang or knifers were licensed, regulated, 
and their trade was one in which the skill was handed down from generation to generation within a family. And this kept the profession tight, secretive, and in a way quite safe. There were plenty of Daozi Jiangs who were second, third, fourth, and even fifth generation in their family to practice this skill. A Daozi is a knife, and a Jiang is a craftsman or a master in some kind of profession like carpentry or masonry, or in the case of a Daozi Jiang, someone skilled in emasculating men or young boys and who could ensure their survival. There were only two main reasons why anyone might knock on the door of any number of Daozi Jiangs in Beijing to ask for their services. Either poverty and financial desperation brought them there, or it was delusions of striking it rich and enjoying a life of comfort in the palace. But it was poverty, more than anything else, that made one consider the Daozi Jiang route. Poverty was the tree that most often bore this particular fruit, bitter though it may have been. No young boy went willingly to this fate. Either he was brought to the Daozi Jiang's shed, forced against his will by his father, who sacrificed this child for the sake of the greater good of the family, or in many cases these boys were kidnapped and brought there for the fees that might come to the kidnappers and finding young emasculates. The Daozi Jiang had fine connections in the Forbidden City. So in choosing one, not only was the Daozi Jiang's skill an enormous consideration, so were his contacts in the palace that might guarantee a spot for the new prospective eunuch. The poorer this emasculated lad, the better. That was how the candidates were viewed. Those who had ambition and ulterior motives in sacrificing their privates, they were too smart and considered potentially risky down the line. The palace administration didn't want to get their hands dirty in this whole sordid business of prospecting for new eunuchs, so they allowed the Daozi Jiang to do all this for them. And these knifers or castrators, however you'd like to refer to them, they would keep a sharp eye open for those who checked all the right boxes. An attractive appearance, engaging, conversant, intelligent, clever, but not too clever, and physically strong. And the way things worked, so poor were some of these families handing over their sons, they couldn't even pay the fees charged by the Daozi Jiang. So after the boy was castrated and went to work in the palace, he was considered adopted by the Daozi Jiang and for a long period of time would need to hand over a portion of his meager income to pay for the services previously rendered. It was quite a racket, and the Daozi Jiang came out on top every single time. After the deed had been done, the severed genitals were stored in a kind of sealed package of about 24 fluid ounces capacity. The contents of this container was called a bao, which meant, among other definitions, a treasure. It was stored high up on a shelf and was tagged with the eunuch's personal details, and you had to keep this bow with you your whole life and be buried with it when you died. And if you were careless and lost it or perhaps forgot to take it with you after surviving the whole castration procedure, well, you had to go back to your particular Daozi Jiang and purchase a replacement, which was another nice source of income for the Daozi Jiangs who always had spare bows, just for instances like these. During the Ming, the number of eunuchs who clocked into work every day for the emperor at its peak numbered around 100,000, or at least perhaps 80,000. 
For the Qing dynasty, the eunuch population in the palace reached its greatest number under Qianlong at about 3,100, and slowly diminished in numbers to 16,1700 by the time of the Empress Dowager Cixi. She was the most powerful political force in the Qing Empire from the death of Xianfeng to her own death in 1908. So let's jump to An De Hai, who lived 1844 to 1869. There are plenty of stories, rumors, and legends about his relationship with the Empress Dowager. He was one of her eunuchs, said to be her favorite. And the whisperings concerning the nature of their personal relationship is the stuff of legends, even going so far as to infer that he was not a eunuch at all and was fully intact in his nether regions. Many scholars insist they were lovers in the physical sense, and being the number one favorite of the most powerful political figure in China, the Empress Dowager Cixi, came with a heck of a lot of perks. And he loved to flaunt his relationship with Cixi, and like eunuchs past, drew no small amount of hatred from political enemies who saw him as the reincarnation of the ghosts of eunuchs past who were guilty of all the things the Schwincher Emperor warned about at the commencement of his reign. The Empress Dowager, she had her detractors at court. Not everyone was lined up on her side. She couldn't trust the traditional channels of governance in the palace and found it more efficient and effective to use her eunuchs to force her way with these officials and bureaucrats. She had an ally in Prince Gong, Gongqin Wang, son of the Daoguang Emperor and half-brother to the Xianfeng Emperor. Prince Gong, he served at the very pinnacle of power in the Qing Empire and was the face of China to the foreign powers during these worst years for the dynasty. Years that the PRC government today unforgivingly still reminds other nations about. He was an on-again, off-again ally of the Empress Dowager. An De Hai forever gained his mistress's loyalty and esteem through his critical assistance in the Xingyou Zhengbian of November 1861. This was the palace coup that followed the death of the Xianfeng Emperor, where Cixi was able to seize power from her political enemies, the so-called Eight Regents. These Eight Regents were eight men who had been appointed to manage government affairs while Cixi's son, the new emperor Tongzhi, was in his minority. The Xinyo coup, launched against these eight regions, successfully, I might add, was led by Cixi and her allies, Prince Gong, the Xianfeng emperor's other empress, Cixi'an, as well as the Hunan warlord, Zheng Guofan. You all remember him from that ten-part warlord series. This group put an end to the eight regions, and starting from that moment... At the end of 1861, the old Buddha, as she was called, Empress Dowager Cixi, she remained the power behind the throne till the day she died. And An De Hai remained at her side, always looking out for her, watching her back, and doing her bidding. After seizing power in 1861, the extravagance and waste exhibited at her court became one of the great open secrets of the time. And not just the Empress Dowager, eunuchs too. This was a, a whole new day for them. And no more short leash for them. In fact, there was no leash at all. And so it happened, like it always is, when there's too many expenditures and not enough income. 
she began to seek out additional revenue streams to finance her weakness for luxury, pomp and circumstance, and marble pleasure boats. And Anda Hai is her representative. He, too, began to go about his life as if he was the lord of 10,000 years, spending lavishly, lording it over his betters, and for this and many other reasons. He became quite a hated figure in the palace. Even Prince Gong couldn't stand him. If no one has too many objections, I'd like to bring out an old friend of us all, who I featured in a three-part series, one of my personal faves, I might add, Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse. He was a lot closer to those times than we are in our day, and he wrote extensively on the subject of the Qing dynasty in general, and the life and times of the Empress Dowager in particular. Regarding An De Hai and Cixi, he wrote, quote, An De Hai became her faithful henchman throughout the crisis of the Zaiyuan conspiracy, and her intermediary and confidant in her dealings with the young guardsman Rong Lu. Upon her accession to the co-regency, he became her favorite attendant and emissary, and later her âme damnée, sharing in all her ambitious hopes and plans, with no small advantage to himself, while at the same time employing his undeniable talents to the diversion of the young widow's mind by the provision of the elaborate court pageants and theatrical entertainments which her soul loved." A quick interjection. The Zaiyuan conspiracy he writes of was the Xinyo coup of 1861, where she seized power from the eight regents. And Rong Lu, of course, another major figure during the last 15 years of the dynasty and a favorite of Cixi, not to mention the grandfather of the last emperor, Puyi. The co-regency backhouse speaks of was that of Cixi herself and the other empress dowager, Cixan. If you recall from previous episodes... Both of these women were consorts to the Xianfeng Emperor, but only Cixi bore him a son, who became the Tongzhi Emperor. Again, quoting Sir Edmund, quote, Although her edicts frequently denounced the corrupt and demoralizing influence of the rats and foxes who infested her palace, describing them as fawning sycophants and artful minions against whom the throne must ever be sternly vigilant, she nevertheless allowed her favorites, An De Hai and Li Lian Ying, to wield an authority only little inferior to her own. She knew that, not only under the Mings, but under the Han and the Tang dynasties, the authority of the sovereign had been usurped and degraded by these myrmidons to the ruin of the state. End quote. Rats and foxes. That's how Cixi famously referred to her palace eunuchs. So Cixi had arranged for An De Hai to go on tour to Shandong province to go raise funds for her diminished treasury. This was strictly forbidden, and eunuchs weren't supposed to leave the environs of Beijing. Now, the outcome of this incident resulted in a turning point in how she ruled China, and in the manner she carried out her vengeance against her enemies and rivals. Backhouse wrote of this moment in 1869 in one of his two volumes written together with J.O.P. Bland in 1910. I quote, In 1869, being short of funds and desiring to replenish her privy purse without consulting Prince Gong or her colleague, the co-regent, she dispatched her favorite, An De Hai, on a special mission to Shandong, where he was to collect tribute in her name. By this time, the chief eunuch had incurred the bitter enmity of several of the princes of the imperial clan, and especially Prince Gong, not only because of his 
growing influence over Cixi, but because of his insolent bearing to all at court. On one occasion, the empress had curtly sent word to Prince Gong that she could not grant him an audience because she was too busy talking to the eunuch, an insult which the prince never forgot, and which cost the favorite his life, besides leading to the disgrace of the prince and other consequences serious to the empire. The chief eunuch's illegal mission to Shandong and his outrageous behavior in that province provided Prince Gong with a long-sought opportunity not only of wreaking vengeance on him, but of creating rivalry and enmity between the empress's regent. The governor of Shandong, an able and courageous official named Ding Baozhen, who had distinguished himself in the Taiping Rebellion, was highly incensed at the arrogant eunuch's assumption of imperial authority, and being quite au courant with the position of affairs in the palace, he reported direct to Prince Gong and asked for instructions. The governor's dispatch reached the prince while Cixi was amusing herself with theatricals. Without a moment's delay, he sought an audience with Cixi'an, the co-regent empress, and playing upon her vanity and weak disposition, induced her to sign a decree which he drafted in her presence, ordering the eunuch's summary decapitation, the customary formality of a trial in Beijing being dispensed with. Cixi'an, hard-pressed as she was, gave her consent reluctantly and with a clear presentiment of evil to come from the wrath of her masterful colleague. The Western Empress will assuredly kill me for this, she is reported to have said to the prince, as she handed him the sealed decree, which Gong sent off post-haste by special courier. And with that, while Cixi was indisposed, watching some theatrical performance and not wishing to be disturbed, Prince Gong and his supporters had on the high executed by decapitation, end quote. Backhouse continued with an accounting of the report sent following the execution. Quote, Ding Baozhen now reports that the eunuch An was arrested in the Tai'an prefecture and has been summarily beheaded. Our dynasty's house law is most strict in regard to the proper discipline of eunuchs and provides severe punishment for any offenses which they may commit. They have always been sternly forbidden to make expeditions to the provinces, or to create trouble. Nevertheless, Anda Hai actually had the brazen effrontery to violate this law, and for his crimes his execution is only a fitting reward. In future, let all eunuchs take warning by his example. Should we have further cause to complain, the chief eunuchs of the several departments of the household will be punished as well as the actual offender. Any eunuch who may hereafter pretend that he has been sent on imperial business to the provinces, shall be cast into chains at once and sent to Beijing for punishment. As for the backlash that followed, it wasn't pretty. Not for Prince Gong, nor for the co-regent Empress Dowager Cixi'an, who allowed herself to be talked into signing off on Anda Hai's summary execution. Of the massive blowout that followed, Backhouse wrote, quote, this event marked a turning point in the career of Yehunala, who, until then, had maintained amicable relations with her less strong-minded colleague, and all the appearances of equality in the co-regency. Henceforward, she devoted more time and closer attention to affairs of state, consolidating her position and power with a clear determination to prevent any further interference with her supreme authority. From this time forward, she definitely assumed the first place as ruler of China. 
relegating her colleague completely to the background. End quote. Which brings us to the last eunuch of note who I want to introduce. This was Li Lianying. He was waiting in the wings, acting as Cixi's hairstylist and confidant, and quickly stepped into Anda Hai's shoes. Once again, let me call on the great backhouse to introduce him. Quote, Anda Hai was succeeded in the post of chief eunuch and confidential attendant on Her Majesty by Li Lianying, of whom mention has already been made. For the next 40 years, this palace servant was destined to play a leading part in the government of China, to hold in his supple hands the lives and deaths of thousands, to make and unmake the highest officials of the empire, and to levy rich tribute on the 18 provinces. As a youth of 16, when he chu jiala, or left the family, as the Chinese euphemistically described the making of a eunuch, Li was remarkable for his handsome appearance and good manners, advantages which never failed to carry weight with Cixi. It is recorded on trustworthy authority that, at an early stage in his career, he had so ingratiated himself with Her Majesty that he was permitted unusual liberties, remaining seated in her presence, aye, even on the throne itself. In the privacy of her apartments, he was allowed to discuss whatever subjects he chose, without being spoken to. And as years passed and his familiarity with the old Buddha increased, he became her regular and authoritative advisor on all important state business. In later years, when speaking of Her Majesty to outsiders, even to high officials, he would use the familiar pronoun zamen, meaning we too, which is usually reserved for blood relations or persons on a footing of familiar equality. And he was currently known among his followers by the almost sacrilegious title of Lord of 9,000 years, the Emperor being Lord of 10,000. Only on solemn state occasions did he observe the etiquette prescribed for his class and a modest demeanor. Corrupt, avaricious, vindictive, and fiercely cruel to his enemies and rivals, it must be said in Li's favor that he was, at least, wholly devoted and faithful to his imperial mistress, and that, at times of peril, he never failed to exert himself to the utmost for her comfort and protection. He possessed, moreover, other good qualities which appealed not only to Cixi, but to many of the high Manchu officials, who did not consider it beneath their pride to throng for admission at his private residence. He was cheerful, fond of a joke, an excellent actor and raconteur, and a generous host, Above all, he was passing rich. At the Empress Dowager's funeral in November 1909, this aged retainer presented a pathetic and almost venerable spectacle, enough to make one forget for a moment the accumulated horrors of his seventy years of wickedness. Smitten with age and sickness, he could scarcely totter the short distance which the cortege had to make on foot, but of all that vast throng of officials and palace servants, he alone showed unmistakable signs of deep and genuine grief. Watching the intelligent features of this maker of secret history, one could not but wonder what thoughts were passing through that subtle brain as he shuffled past the pavilion of the diplomatic body, escorting for the last time his great mistress, the close confidant, not to say comrade, of all those long and eventful years. For half a century he had served her with unremitting zeal and fidelity, 
No small thing in a country where the allegiance of servants is so commonly bought and sold. In his youth, it was he who walked and ran beside her chair as a body servant. Through what scenes of splendor and squalor had they both passed since then? And now he was left alone, surrounded by new faces and confronted by imminent peril of change. Yet in spite of his long life and the enervating influences of his profession, the old man's powerful physique was by no means exhausted. Too wise to follow in the footsteps of his unfortunate predecessor, Lee never made raids on his own account into the provinces, nor did he ever attempt to gain or claim high official rank, remaining prudently content with the fourth-class button, which is the highest grade to which eunuchs may legally aspire. But under the protection and with the full knowledge of the Empress Dowager, he organized a regular system of corvées, squeezes, and deucers, levied on every high official in the empire, the proceeds of which he frequently shared with the old Buddha herself. As shown in another place, the empress and her chief eunuch practically made common cause and a common purse in collecting tribute and squeezes during the wanderings of the court in exile after 1900. At that time, the chief eunuch, less fortunate than his mistress, had lost the whole of his buried treasure in the capital. It had been cached in a safe place, known only to his intimate subordinates. But one of these sold the secret to the French troops, who raided the horde, a rich booty. One of Lee's first steps, after the court's return, was to obtain the old Buddha's permission to have the traitor beheaded, which was done without undue formalities. The chief eunuch's fortune is estimated by Beijing bankers today at about two million sterling, invested chiefly in pawn shops and money-changing establishments at the capital. This sum represents roughly his share of the provincial tribute and squeezes on official appointments for the last eight years, and the total is not surprising when we bear in mind that the price of one official post has been known to bring him in as much as 320,000 tails, or, say, 40,000 pounds. End quote. There's an old story that alleges that she had muttered on her deathbed, quote, Be careful not to allow eunuchs to meddle in government matters. The Ming Dynasty was brought to ruin by eunuchs, and its fate should be a warning to my people. End quote. Well, this may be so, but she relied on them as much as any past emperor. She is remembered for many events in Chinese history, and surely one reason was her unholy alliances with An De Hai and Li Lianying. You know, there's an old story that says it was Li Lianying who poisoned the Guangxu Emperor, who died within 24 hours of his aunt, the Empress Dowager. There's another theory that says it was Yuan Shikai Kai who did the deed worried about what might happen to him in the event of the Empress Dowager's passing. Li Lianying, he too had a death that was shrouded in mystery. In one version, he died of natural causes on March 4, 1911. Another version says his death was arranged by Yuan Shikai. Well, who's to say? His nice tomb out in the Haidian district of northwest Beijing got a major once-over during the Cultural Revolution. The Red Guards didn't let this eunuch off the hook and smashed his tomb up but good. And when they got to his remains, the only organic substance contained in the coffin was Li Lianying's skull. What happened to the rest of them? We'll probably never know. 
Well, I don't know about you, but it's getting late around here, and I guess we're not going to get to Sun Yaoting in this episode. I'll just have to wait till next time, and I feel quite confident that ought to do it for this topic. If I may take one more moment of your time, may I cordially invite you to support me and the CHP by signing up at patreon.com slash chinahistorypodcast. There you'll find a bunch of stories already there waiting for you that detail some of the incidents from my past life. There's more being added all the time, and whenever I could get these episodes finished a little early, you can always get a listen a few days prior to the millions and millions of listeners who most patiently wait for the next regularly scheduled offerings from the CHP. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Patreon not your cup of tea? Hey, hit me up at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. I'll be equally as thankful. Links for both donation methods are to be found in the show notes at the episode at teacup.media or in your uh, podcast app. Okay, that's it for now. As usual, Laszlo Montgomery signing off from sunny Los Angeles, California. Please consider coming back next time for another exciting episode of Le Podcast sur l'histoire de la Chine.